Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 11, Teas and Blues. The drug that was so lovingly injected into my bloodstream was called Teas and Blues. Teas and Blues were a synthetic heroin that came down to Arkansas by way of Chicago. They were two pills which were sold as a set and cost $10. A set consisted of a yellow pill called Talwin and a blue pill that no one ever knew the name of. The two pills were crushed into a medicine bottle with three cc's of water, shaken and then pulled up into a syringe using a piece of cigarette filter. The solution was light yellow and very chalky. It had an intoxicatingly sweet chemical smell, which would haunt you every hour of every waking day. Once you smelled it, you were done for. It followed you like the scent of a new lover who beckons you back when you'd rather just have some space. Teas and Blues weren't a white people's drug, and we had to go to the black neighborhood to get them. They were sold at a place called The Corner, which was actually a corner where white people had no other business than buying drugs. When we first started getting stopped by the police, they always assumed we were lost. We didn't look like junkies, and in their eyes, we were just sweet little white angels who were lost in the big, black, scary neighborhood. So they would give us directions on the best way to get back home safely. My relationship with Lil and Gary intensified, and we grew into a cabal. We were secretive, exclusive, and bonded by our new love, Tees and Blues. So much so that Lil and I got our own apartment together, which gave us the freedom to share this love privately. The dark apartment was sparsely furnished, and suggested no other living than that of a junkie. A round coffee table, which sat in front of a tattered couch, flanked by windows darkened with bedsheet curtains, was decorated with the accoutrements of this junkie lifestyle. Shriveled up cigarette filters sitting in bent spoons, random medicine bottles encrusted with a yellow residue, crunched up toilet paper with blood spots, and tiny squares of empty tin foil. Needles, which were initially shared, were hidden away safely because they were hard to come by, and as such were used until dull 
and devoid of the red-letter measuring. Will and I were unable to hit ourselves up, and because of that, Gary became our Svengali. We were dependent on him for scoring and shooting, and since none of us had the personality of moderation, within months we were addicts. Our lives revolved around the teas and blues, and we couldn't be together without smelling that sweet scent of medicine, which would send us scurrying to the corner for a dose of love. But Will and I grew tired of sharing our drugs with Gary, which was the price of his expertise. Out of greed and desperation, we learned to do this important act of autonomy for ourselves. It was quite empowering to hit your own vein, and every time I saw the blood surge up into the needle, I fell more and more in love. It took ages before people even realized that I was shooting up drugs, which was weird because I didn't hide my track marks. Like all new loves, I was proud of them, and I thought they made me look tough chick cool. But no one seemed to notice, because at this point in my life, no one was even watching, which left the smoldering embers of a fixation grow into the raging fire of addiction. I always had a day job, but it was never enough money, so I became a criminal. No matter where I worked, I figured out a way to embezzle money. My bosses always knew something was up, but I thought out every little detail and stayed one step ahead of their non-criminal ways of thinking. Even though I wasn't the all-American type, I didn't look like a crook. And better than that, I had a natural accomplice. One hell of a smile. I wasn't even a happy person, but this smile was forever plastered on my face. And because of that, it wormed me out of many situations. I considered it part of my duty as a junkie to perfect the skill of thievery, and I practiced often. Glenn and his lover were wealthy, so they took the brunt of my crimes. Glenn always forgave me, but his lover was not so inclined. Lil was neither so inclined to forgive me either after I committed one of the greatest transgressions one could against a best friend. I slept with her boyfriend, Gary. I wasn't in love and I didn't have a crush, yet he was my best friend, so maybe none of that was true. But either way, it was just one of those crazy drug nights where there is no such thing as consequence, only instant gratification. It only happened because Gary and I were alone and overcome by the warm and sexy feelings that pervade your body when you shoot yourself up with narcotics. It could have been anyone, which is what I tried to explain to Lil as we walked down one of the narrow back alleys of our neighborhood. 
She didn't believe me, and she didn't care. She kicked the stones and the pebbles that lay innocently on the dirt path as hard as she could. Every little one skipping and bouncing furiously with her hurt and anger. She yelled and cried and called me every name in the book. She told me that I was a whore and a liar, and she was right, I was. Lil and I used to talk or be together every single day, but not anymore. I had shattered the magic ball of being her best friend, and I deserved every ounce of hatred and alienation she threw my way, which she did, while also shuttering the doors of our love nest, which left me alone again and naturally homeless. Nineteen eighty-two, a dark and dangerous love. At nineteen, near to twenty years old, with nothing but a bad habit and a guilty conscience, I started hanging out at the corner with a dealer named Monk. On the day that I met him, he was sitting on an orange plastic container set back off the street. He was a tall beefy black man with a large, misshapen afro. His skin was smooth and soft, the color of milk chocolate, and his lips were large and succulent. His presence was frightening and intimidating, and I knew I should have been scared, but there was something about him that made me smile. I liked the way he looked. He watched me intently as I walked toward him, his wise yet vacant eyes reading every step I took. When I finally stood before him, shifting nervously from one foot to the other, he smiled a half-cocked grin and with great authority said, You're a Virgo. He was right, and from that moment on, there was an ease and comfort between us. I sat down next to him and started writing the next chapter of my life. The corner was not a place where anyone other than the dealers hung out. It was a place of business and danger, so it was an honor to be invited to sit with Monk, especially since I was white. White women draw attention, but Monk taught me how to spot a cop car coming from blocks away. Square headlights. It was an observation that served me well for many years to come. Monk didn't talk much. I did all the talking as he kept his gaze to the street, leaning forward while clenching his swollen drug addict hands. Whenever a cop or a customer would slowly slink their way to the corner, I was ordered to go hide behind a rusted-out automobile. I watched all the dealings go down by looking in the side mirror of the car. Drug addicts were very desperate, and I had never heard so many lame excuses or pathetic begging in all my life. 
People never had enough money for their drugs, and everybody wanted something for nothing or to pay tomorrow. They would bring crazy stuff to the corner like cologne or a lawnmower and try and do a trade. But what was Monk going to do with a lawnmower? He was homeless. I was pretty sure that I was Monk's girlfriend because he took me to his mother's house to have sex. Sometimes we did it in the drug houses, but that was not very romantic or sanitary. I preferred his mom's house. His mother, Tilly, was a sweet little lady, half the size of Monk, and I could just picture her in church on Sundays, swallowed up by a big floppy hat and several praise be to the Lords. She was always very happy to see me, and that made me feel guilty. She treated me as if God had told her that I would be a good influence on her son, and I wanted to be, but God was wrong. One night, after he finished his shift at the corner, we went to an abandoned house to boot up. There were several skanky women sitting around in various states of the nod. The most coherent of these ladies treated Monk as if he was her boyfriend, but I kept my mouth shut and just observed. These were the kind of women that would sell their own children for a fix and I wasn't about to get territorial. When the last of the drugs had been shot up, Monk told us we had to go make some money. The other women seemed to know what he meant by that, but I did not. He told me we would take my car, since I was the only one who had one. I didn't want to look like an idiot, so I drove where Monk told me to go, which was a truck stop on the outskirts of town. The smell of five street junkies cramped into an automobile was almost more than I could stand. Their pungent stench told the story of a southern street junkie. Rotting and infected skin, overused and unclean genitals, high humidity, and the remnants of a fear-induced perspiration. I asked Monk what we were going to do, and he told me, in a matter-of-fact tone, that we ladies were going to turn tricks. My face couldn't hide the terror of this news, and my body broke out in a cold sweat. The ladies rolled their eyes and snickered, amateur. Monk asked me if I had ever done this before, and with coy embarrassment, I replied, kind of, which was a lie. He gave me the rundown on what to charge for what, but I couldn't keep it straight. The thought of having some strange trucker hoisted on top of me skewed the learning curve, and I couldn't concentrate. I was trying to figure out how to get out of this mess without looking like a wuss or ruining my exalted relationship with Monk. But lesson time was over, and I was told to get out there and get the job done before the law showed up. 
Knocking on the cab door of a semi is not easy. I was too short. I had to climb up onto a metal footstep, hang onto the side mirror with my right hand, and precariously lean to the left and knock. Monk would have been pissed off if he knew how tepidly I did this, because I didn't want to do this. I hated waking people up, and to my relief, most of the doors went unanswered. Unfortunately, one guy did answer, and I awkwardly asked him if he wanted a date. That is what Monk told me to say. He looked at me like I was a whore and reluctantly invited me in. The first thing he asked, was I a cop? Which I thought strange, because if I were, wouldn't I lie about it? He said he only wanted a blowjob, and I told him it would cost $10. He pulled down his pants, and I became horrified. Cobweb was the first word that came to my mind. He wasn't a totally gross guy, he was just a trucker. But the smell of this whole scenario disgusted me. I put his flagging dick in my mouth and almost vomited. I was no pro, and I did not get the job done. I fumbled around with his penis, trying not to gag, which pissed him off. He threw a $10 bill at me, which was nice, and told me to get the hell out of there. Monk was very disappointed. He thought I should have made more money, considering I was white and relatively clean. It was about 4 a.m. in the morning when we got back to Little Rock. We dropped off the ladies and were almost to the corner when I saw the blue flashing lights behind me. Monk tensed up immediately, and even though I had just pulled my first trick, I was still naive. I wasn't worried about a thing. I knew we didn't have any drugs on us because we were on our way to get the drugs. Two cops walked up to the car and shined their flashlights into our faces. They wanted to know what we were doing out this time of night. It never occurred to me to ask why we were pulled over, and before I knew it, they asked if they could search the car. I was confident, so I agreed. Monk didn't say a word. I did all the talking. I tried to play like I was the most innocent white girl in all of Arkansas, just out for a joyride in the middle of the night with my best friend. When the cops got to the trunk of the car, they unexpectedly pulled out the most uniformly rolled joint I'd ever seen in my life. They belted out some ahas, while I looked at it with shock and awe. How the hell did that get there? My brain started racing, looking for an explanation. For one thing, I thought, I'm a drug addict. I don't lose drugs. I need every damn drug I can get my hands on. Secondly, who the hell rolls a joint that looks like that? And thirdly, what the hell is a joint doing in the trunk of my car? An unfamiliar flood of information surged through me and I realized that I was being set up. I started rambling on and on about how it wasn't my joint. It's my car. I would have known if there was a joint in there. Did y'all put that in there? 
I started sweating that nasty-smelling nervous sweat, my body shaking from head to toe. I knew exactly what they wanted. They wanted Monk, and they wanted to send me a message. White girls and black boys don't mix. Bad, bad, bad. Monk had warrants, so they hauled him off to jail. I got a lecture on whom I should and shouldn't be hanging out with, and the joint quietly disappeared. Monk and I had been homeless together, but it never felt that way to me. I considered myself on a big adventure because Monk always found us a place to stay. I kept waiting for him to get out of jail, but it never happened. I went to his mom's house and found out that he had been sent up to prison and would be gone for a really long time. Tilly actually thanked me for spending time with him, which broke my heart. On the inside, I just shook my head. No, no, no. Why did she think I was so great? Couldn't she tell by looking at me that I was just as bad as Monk? The streets and my homelessness took me from bad to worse. But I did manage to keep a job, waiting tables at a breakfast joint. No matter what your life, working the morning shift is a wholesome way to start the day as it deceptively feeds your soul with the expectation of endless possibilities. And being such a believer, I thought nothing of it when a man who smelled similar to the air freshener that was pumped into the restaurant bathroom decided over eggs and coffee that I would be his girlfriend. It was as easy as that, and I trusted him because he did smell so antiseptically clean. I took it as a sign of someone with a real job, stability, and respectability. When my shift was over, he picked me up and took me to his pedestrian apartment in a complex located somewhere off the highway. He kept the shades drawn so his place was dark and cozy, and as I expected, precisely organized with manly furnishings. There was no denying that we had nothing in common, but like my mother, I could talk to anyone, and commonality was not important when you needed a place to sleep. The first day I was there, he was very kind to me, and I talked obliviously with him about our future together. I wasn't really thinking past tomorrow, but it was a distracting game to play, even though deep down I knew it was ridiculous. We were strangers after all, but no matter, it was a nice apartment, and his happy chatter did not prepare me for what was about to come. I knew that having sex with him was part of the deal, and he made it seem so nonchalant at first, tying my hands to the bed. But almost immediately, the casual turned to perversity as he crammed his very long tongue down my throat, choking and gagging me. His anger escalated the more he jackhammered my esophagus, and when he came up for air, he called me names, beat on me, and then fucked me. 
His sexual fury turned his light brown skin to raging colors of black and red, and I thought he was going to explode, which he did all over me. When he finished, he got up and went to the bathroom. Lying shackled to the bed, I could have sworn I heard him singing in the shower. And then, as if nothing untoward had happened, he strolled out with a towel around his waist, clean, satisfied, and content. He then released my wrists and asked me if I had a good time. I really didn't, but I lied and slept with one eye open and as far to the edge of the bed as I could. Upon waking, I was in serious need of a fix. This man was a freak, but not a drug addict, and he had nothing of value in his medicine cabinet. I was starting to sense that it might be a while before I could score any drugs, so I considered shooting up water and wondered whether or not it would satisfy or kill me. I was always shooting water into my veins anyway, right? It was the air bubbles that you had to watch out for. It was the air bubbles that would kill you. I attempted to get myself dressed while surveying the bumps, bruises, and bite marks that this maniac had left all over my body. In the most pleasant voice, he asked me what I was doing and where I thought I was going. His syrupy attitude told me that I was in trouble. He said I wasn't going anywhere and that I was to stay naked in the bed until he got home from work. He threatened my life and the lives of everyone I knew, which I thought was odd because he didn't know any of my friends. I wasn't sure how serious to take this threat because he seemed so nice and this potential captivity had come out of the blue. I did a little tough girl arguing with him. Actually, it was my addiction arguing and then conceded. I told him I would stay. He left for work without tying me up, so I wasn't really scared, but I was stranded. I had no idea where I was. I called Sue, my first Sue, Gorton Sue, and described the scenery around the complex. Being close to the freeway helped her navigate to my location, and when she finally found me, she used the word rape. She wanted me to call the police, but I didn't know if I had been raped. I knew this guy was a freak, but I had gone willingly to his apartment, and that seemed hard to argue. It didn't matter anyway. I was free now, and I was safe. And besides that, the police didn't care about junkies, and they certainly didn't like blacks and whites together. I did not tell Sue how he had threatened the lives of everyone I knew, because I didn't want to scare her. <laughs>